This is Iron Sports 95.9, 106.9, West Palm Beach. We're honored to have a Sports Illustrated writer, basketball writer, Chris Herring on, who just wrote the book called The uh, Flagrant History of the 1990s New York Knicks, Blood in the Garden. Chris, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports. Uh, I appreciate it, Ira. Thank you. So you touched on a topic, and I was interested in the book. You said people talk about the Knicks all the time, that period of time in the 90s, but there's never been a book written on it, and it had such an interesting cast of characters with Riley as a coach and Mason and Ewing, and it, it was something that, I guess, it drew your attention to write about it. Yeah. I mean, to me, I think, you know, especially in the last year two years, uh, disproportionately so, I think, the teams that win and win the whole thing get a lot of attention. Um, you know, we all got a chance to at least watch the, the Jordan documentary that was 10 parts. Um, since then, <laughs> ESPN has since come out with, you know, a Tom Brady, you know, kind of retrospective in terms of his career. Uh, Derek Jeter one is on the way. Uh, so, we, you know, it's still a point now where I think, you know, after the Jordan success, we're, we're just kind of getting used to this. It's something that's going to happen. There's going to be an HBO series on the 80s Lakers pretty soon. So we get more sometimes even than we ask for <laughs> with regards to hearing about the winners and the, the people that dominate an era. Um, but meanwhile, I think there's kind of a, a fascination that maybe is underplayed a little bit about the teams that don't quite win but really influence the way things will work afterwards. And so, you know, I think the most watched 30 for 30 to this day is still the the Fab Five documentary. They did not win a title, but I also think that they were fascinating in terms of the personalities, as far as what they would usher in culturally. And I think the Knicks are a little bit closer to that. I think they had some fascinating personalities between Pat Riley and Anthony Mason. Um, they had obviously some kind of legendary battles with the Bulls, uh, with the Pacers, with the Heat, and you know maybe the most fiery rivalry of all against the Heat in the late nineties. But also, even if you take those things off the table, they were always involved in moments that kind of were culturally important from the OJ chase uh, to the stuff that we're talking about with Reggie and Spike Lee. Um, And I think more than that, and this is what I think is more important, they they were not the team of that era, but I think that they were probably the team that would go on to dictate more about the game would be the way the game would be played in the future. Um, And, you know, I don't think that we would have – today's NBA would have gotten today's NBA as quickly as we did with this much skill and this much athleticism without those Knicks because the league wanted to run away as fast as it could from the way the Knicks played basketball. And so I think the Knicks are are just as important really as any team, you know, maybe outside of the Bulls, but I think that they changed more about the way the game would be played than the Bulls did even from those years. And the architect of this was Pat Riley. You mentioned in the book that there was about 10, 15 years where the Knicks were almost irrelevant, except for when Batito was the coach. And Dave Checkers was hired as general manager. And they bring Riley in, who's known for Showtime with the Lakers. And my real quick little story on this is that you mentioned he was hired at the Regency Hotel one day where Checkers met with him. And that same day, I was having, I was a first year, I was a summer associate at a law firm, sort of, and we were having a breakfast with one of the partners. And I remember I went to the bathroom and Riley and I were both there. And I was nervous because I'm meeting with a partner and I'm trying to get a job. And I guess Riley wasn't as nervous as I was, but it was just, we stood there for like, I was like three minutes 
candidates. And then I was like wondering, and the next day was later, you know, said that day that Riley was hired as the, the coach. And I knew that there was discussions. Oh, wow. And I remember I went back to the table and everyone was sort of weird. This partner was very standoffish. And someone said, "Is how are you liking New York? And I said, I just ran into Pat Riley in the bathroom and I think he might come to the Knicks. And my colleagues were all looking at me strange. And the partner loved the Knicks. And he was just started talking to me and engaging. And I was like, wow, that was a good thing to say. But sorry for that detour. But the point no, is, <laughs> but that is the idea of bringing Riley with Showtime. But the Riley that came to the Knicks was not the Riley we saw from the Lakers. It's completely different in terms of style of game. Well, I, I think the emphasis was certainly different. I, I, it's funny. I think there's maybe almost too much credit given in terms of just changing his style, because I think at his core, I think Pat Riley was a little bit of a chameleon from the standpoint that um, the Lakers were just a team that had so much offensive talent and had so much skill as far as getting the ball up and down the floor with Magic Johnson and the passing that existed on the roster, the scoring that existed, that of course he was going to emphasize that. And and really what the players were looking at, if you look at kind of what happened with, with Paul Westhead, they were a team that had started to get frustrated with the fact that they had all this skill on offense and just wanted to kind of play a rip-and-run sort of style of offense. And Paul Westhead was trying to change that. And so the players were kind of frustrated with the idea that they had a a coach that wouldn't just really let them play, but was trying to structure them. And so Pat Riley just kind of let them do that. Um, and he built in stuff defensively. Now, he was a tough-minded coach on defense. Um, my book agent and my book editor at one point were kind of wrestling with me, trying to get me to title the book No Layups Allowed. And I wouldn't <laughs> do that. And the reason I wouldn't do it is because Riley used that phrase first with the Lakers. So I think he had a pretty nasty sort of streak there, too. I just think that more we heard way more about their offense in L.A. But to your point, yes, I mean, he certainly emphasized the defensive stuff more with the Knicks. He looked at the roster and basically said, there's no way we could replicate showtime here. We don't have enough ball handlers. We have a center that does not have great knees. Um, we're not going to be able to run up and down the floor like that, but we do have a lot of big bodies and a lot of guys that could be physical or that we could at least train to be more physical and to have more of an edge to them to kind of intimidate opposing teams and that was what they did and I think that was what really influenced the sport to change uh, after a few years. And the star of the team was of course Patrick Ewing probably one of the most misunderstood superstars ever. I mean, to think in, from the fabric of being at Georgetown and, and all everything he did in the titles he won in Georgetown and the finals that he lost in Georgetown, and then being in the Knicks in the center of the whole media attention uh, in terms of being in New York and his failures and inability to win the title. But you mentioned in the book that he was beloved by his teammates, that, that he, they felt he was the most loyal person, they loved him, and that just a completely like misunderstood type person in terms of uh, Patrick yeah i mean he's someone that and you've heard that for years that the teammates loved him you know everybody maybe outside of anthony mason who really could never understand or really get with the idea that patrick didn't like to sign autographs particularly for children um that really bothered mace but aside from that i mean he was a guy that um quietly was going to have your back that you know during the off season was going to pay for the whole team to come out to jamaica um, and, and spend time with him to see where he grew up and just to kind of get away from the media glare of New York City. He was a guy that, you know, when your wife has brain cancer, that Patrick is going to foot the bill for the whole treatment, for the whole surgery, whatever is needed, uh, six figures or more, was going to do that. Um, was a guy that, that had a fun side to him, that <laughs> despite being the highest-paid player in the NBA, the highest-paid player in sports a couple of times, 
that was the case during the 90s, um, particularly when Jordan was out of the game, he was going to buy lottery tickets every day. <laughs> Just a, a really different sort of guy. Um, you know, but the team, even even when he kind of set himself off from the rest of the team, which he did sometimes because he was very private, um, the teammates just counted it as such a win when they could get Patrick to kind of come out with them. And uh, someone gave me an anecdote about the idea that they went out one night after, I think it was maybe a win over the Lakers, and decided to go out and just have a night out, you know, where the guys were out until 3 in the morning, and they went to a dance club. And just, like, how much fun that was for them because Patrick was there uh, just, I don't know. I think we all have had that experience where there's someone that doesn't make the time or can't always make the time, but then when they do with the rest of your friends, it just kind of livens the night that much more, and it feels like such a um, – because it's something that doesn't happen very often, it's just so much more of a win at that point. So Patrick was someone that his teammates really, really grew to love. Um, and, you know, there, the, the, the divisions that happened later in the late 90s, I think, were kind of more due to talk radio – and more due to the, the amplified notion of the idea of like was Patrick aging to a point where he was still taking on too big a role in the offense. Um, and I do think eventually you started to have guys like I don't think Latrell Sprewell was as worried about Patrick's legacy and the way that you know how does a star player kind of step out of the limelight or start to kind of relinquish some of the power and the power dynamic within the offense. I think over time as the teammates started to change, some of that started to fade um, as far as it being so important to everyone else, but during those Starks, Oakley days and stuff like that. I mean, Ewing was just beloved by everybody in that locker room. And then the two players, two of the core players, are Anthony Mason and John Starks. And talk about a backgrounds. I mean, we, we've noticed about, you know, this is a five-star athlete. They've gone in this camp AAU. I mean, Mason was traveled, like, how many countries was he before he made the NBA? And John Starks was in how many colleges, bouncing around, I mean, like six or seven colleges, getting, just transferring and transferring. And your story about him getting married and then playing in front of Kansas and scoring 25 points and half. I mean, all these stories about these two uh, uh, players that would, you know, form the core of the Knicks and take this team to the finals and have the best records in the league were just totally overlooked for most of their time in basketball. Yeah. I mean, those two were, you know, just to me, were probably the biggest characters on that team. I know Oakley was someone that enjoyed his gambling and everything, but I think Starks and, and Mason, you know, were, were almost more interesting to me because of the fact that they had so little basketball experience, high-level basketball experience, really, I would say, up until, up until they basically made the pros or at least started playing professionally elsewhere. Um Starks is a guy that played one year, really, of high school basketball. I don't even know if it was the varsity team or not. Uh, you know, couldn't really afford to play a sport because he, you know, his family was so poor that they needed him to work and um, played at four different colleges, three of which were community colleges, um, bagged groceries at Safeway. So he's got a little bit of the Kurt Warner story attached to him um, for $3.35 an hour. Uh, he started at when he took the job there. And, you know, I, I kind of tie this to the, all that explanation. Um, there were moments where people couldn't understand why he'd keep shooting and, like, why, he, you know, he maybe didn't have the highest on-court IQ. He really never played organized basketball in, like, one place for more than a year with one coach for more than a year um, until, again, he got to the pros. And even then, he was bouncing around from one league to the next. Um, so it, until he made it to the Knicks and stuck there, I want to say that might have been really the only time he played basketball for two consecutive years anywhere, um, really for the first time in his career, which is like a crazy thing to say. 
Um, most people do that, accomplish that by high school or maybe junior high. So, um, so he's fascinating from that standpoint to me. Um, not to mention just how hot and cold he runs, or kind of the the butting heads, literally with Reggie Miller or what have you. But then Mason, I mean, Mason was a guy that didn't start playing until late high school either, um, and was a guy that was really, really wound tightly. That you know probably bubbled over a little bit too much, certainly for Pat Riley's liking at times, that had all the confidence in the world that (laughs) someone told him to pass the ball. He'd swear at them and, uh, you know, and say that he was a better ball handler than they were anyway. Um, And was a guy that basically thought that the offense should run through him and and found a coach that would agree with them on that. Uh, And Don Nelson later on and let him handle the ball as a point forward, but also was just, you know, always thought he should be on the floor essentially had a, a great stamina, an on-court stamina, uh, led the league in minutes one year. But even with that being the case, essentially issued a written death threat to Don <laughs> Nelson, um, saying that if you take me out of a game, I'll kill you. If you do that again, I'll kill you. Um, and a death threat, and a written death threat, while Don Nelson was speaking to the media after a game against the Kings. Um, but here's the important thing to keep in mind, <laughs> and the context behind that. That night, I'm pretty sure Mason played 38 minutes in a game that he didn't even play particularly well. Um, but also Anthony Mason was leading the league in minutes at that point. So nothing was really good enough for him. And, uh, you know, he was just a guy, you know, the team was full of guys that I would say, aside from Ewing and maybe a couple other guys that were wound a little bit too tightly, uh, that just their emotions bubbled over all the time at the drop of a hat. And I think Mason was at the top of that list. Starks was not far behind him. And then, you know, and people think Riley, Riley was only there four years and his first two years, uh, the were against were stopped by Jordan and and they almost in ninety two ninety three I mean clearly that was the Charles Smith year I mean I remember where I was it was in Atlanta at a bar and I was trying to get someone to turn the Braves game to the Padres game in order to watch that game when the Knicks had a chance to go up in that series and Charles Smith missed four shots for for the basket but it was really this. This uh, the idea, and this is when you talk about changing the game. I mean, the fact that Stern said, "Look, they're beating up Jordan. They're knocking him down. They're 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 fo- they're not letting the game be free flowing." That's why we see players today, even just like the Alex Caruso foul that uh, Grayson Allen had. You know, back in those days, that would have been a normal foul. That uh, Allen's foul on Caruso just happened this past week. Uh, they now, but now it's like, oh, Allen should be suspended. The games, all those things like that. But I really think it was that that whole battle with Jordan in those first two years in the a six game series and a seven game series that really captivated the nation. No, I think you're totally right. And I think, you know, I've I've thought plenty and seen a replay of that play plenty. Um, (laughs) Someone, I was actually on a Sixers podcast a couple days ago, and it was interesting because um, the podcaster was trying to get me to agree with him, you know, based on the research I've done, all the interviews I've done for the book, to say, don't you think people have gotten, you know, like based on, you know, how fun that era was and how much people love those teams and that Knicks team in particular, you know, don't you think people get a little bit weird about hard fouls now? Like we should have more of them in the game. And I, I essentially told him, no, like he wanted me to agree with them. And I said, no. Um, and I was thinking about the Crusoe foul in particular. I basically said, you, you know, even a lot of those Nick players, like Doc Rivers is a very, very good example. Doc was the first one to complain about the rules in the moment. Um, and call them anti-Nick rules. But he's also the first one to say, man, I'm really happy they changed them because the game (laughs) had to change. And, you know, essentially that Caruso foul is exactly what I think about is that, you know, one other thing that's not really mentioned much, the changes between 1991 and 2022, these guys make a lot more money. Um, 
and you can't have guys out for eight, ten weeks, twelve weeks, whole seasons, because someone just decides to make a really dangerous play. Um, it, it's just you know, it, it's there's there's something to be said for a hard foul when you're just kind of shoving someone and they're running between that and hitting someone when they're in the air. And I mean, you don't even have to hit someone when they're in there. You can kind of just push them and shove them a little bit or just kind of touch them. Um, and quite frankly, that's how Patrick Ewing shattered his wrist, uh, by the way, in 1998 was a play like that. In 1997 was a play like that. So um, it doesn't take much. And also you can't really take it back once it happens. Uh, so it's, it's just, there's not really a place in today's game for that. But quite frankly, you know, that happened at times with the Knicks during the 90s. When we talk about Ewing, Starks had a foul on Kenny Anderson where he broke his wrist um, on a foul where Kenny was up in the air. It, it doesn't seem like much. It didn't seem like much back then. But um, you don't have the control of really how hurt these guys get when they're up in the air like that. So thank goodness the game has changed. I mean, I think we all wish that there was a little bit more animosity in the game. But if there are ways to do that without it being literally dangerous for guys, I would prefer that. And, um, you know, it, it doesn't take much for something to be dangerous. These guys are so athletic now. And because there's not constant pushing and shoving and hand checking, there's a lot more space involved a lot more space and a lot more athleticism and speed. The guys jump higher. That leaves a lot more room for danger when, when these guys actually do collide with each other. And so uh, I know for me, I'm grateful that, um, that, you know, that the rules are a little bit different to kind of discourage some of that stuff. And um, I'm, I'm happy the game is at least different from what it was back then, the same way Doc is. Uh, we're talking to Chris Herring, author of the book, The Blood in the Garden, about the 90s Knicks. I, I, you have so many great little stories in this book. If you just tell the story about Pat Riley before the 93-94 season when he was in Maui, and uh, I just liked when in terms of his hotel room. It's just a great story. I, I reread it like three times. It was so funny. Yeah, well, Pat makes a decision. You referenced a minute ago um, the Charles Smith play that still kind of lives in infamy for Knicks fans in 1993. So at the end of that season, um, you know, Pat – after a long season, the, the way I think most people would wants to go on vacation, he takes his family to Hawaii um, and is there. You know, it's Pat Riley, so of course he can afford the nicest accommodations they have. He gets the presidential suite, and upon being there, um, you know, maybe a couple of days into the trip, is called and told by the front desk staff, you know, Mr. Riley, we're so so sorry. Uh, we wanted to try to get in touch with you because uh, something really important has come up we need to clear your room and uh, we need to move you to the second nicest accommodation we ever. We're so sorry. This never happened. Um, we really apologize. And, you know, Pat, again, with the ability to afford the nicest room, you normally kind of are afforded the idea of not having to be asked to bolt your room uh, on short notice for anything, really. Uh, you, you pay for the right to not have to have that happen. So he's trying to figure out what it is. He's asking, is there any way around it? They're saying, no, sir, there really isn't. We're really sorry. Um, so Pat, you know, what choice does he have? He leaves the room. You know, the people from the front desk have said that they will move all his luggage, all his family's luggage for the trouble, and they'll take care of it. Uh, maybe you can just kind of go down and enjoy the ocean for a little bit or maybe enjoy the pool with your family, and we'll bring you some food, you know, in the meantime. So with no choice, Pat does that with his family. Um, but Pat is constantly looking up from, you know, the, the ocean and everything and from his from – his, uh, where they're eating and everything to try to figure out like what just necessitated that move for them. Uh, so he finally looks up, you know, maybe 20, 30 minutes later and sees that Michael Jordan now is standing kind of in the balcony area of where he just left. 
And so it was essentially Michael Jordan knocking him literally from the top perch of the hotel and this resort. Um, and I just thought it was a really good way to kind of get into the idea of how Michael oversaw everything that happened during that era and that you really had to go through him to try to, you know, to kind of claim supremacy at the time. And but then when Michael retired that summer, then 93, 94, that was the time that was it was one of the most famous years in basketball in terms of without Jordan. The fact that they the Knicks make the playoffs, you have the Spike Lee game with Reggie Miller arguing with Spike Lee. You you have the uh, the Hugh Hollins foul where they beat the Bulls. They finally beat the Bulls in the playoffs with a surprising foul. They talk about the last dance. And then you go to the Rockets, the final series against Elijah one. This is the chance the Knicks are going to win the title. You have the OJ game when OJ was on the chase during the game when the Knicks were playing at the, in the finals when everybody's sort of following the OJ chase. And then game seven, John Starks missing. I think he ended up two for 18. Your star shooter couldn't shoot at all uh, and losing finally. It was like the high watermark of the Knicks is that game seven to lose to the to Houston Rockets. Exactly. And I mean, I, I think there's something to be said for the fact that um, the, the Knicks felt like they, I mean, twice really in two years. '93, we were talking about Charles Smith, and then '94, I think, is the one that really, really should hurt. Some people mention '93 as being the the missed opportunity, and it probably was a little bit. But even if they win that game in the Charles Smith game, they've got to then beat Michael one more time in those two opportunities to try to advance past them. Then they've got to beat a Phoenix team that won the West, you know, and had a better record than they did. Um, you know, during that season. So I don't think it's a given that they win that series. The Bulls did win that series against them, but they, you know, they had a tough time doing it as well. It was not an easy, you know, just kind of rollover sort of process to beat them. So I, to me, 94 is the year where they clearly, clearly missed an opportunity. They, they go to game six and, you know, they, they win from the momentum uh, in game five where they win the OJ game. Game six comes along. They've got an opportunity down two with five and a half seconds left, and John Starks has made six shots in a row. He's on fire. You know, he's making up for a really ineffective Patrick Ewing against Hakeem Olajuwon. Um, Starks takes a pick and roll with, with Ewing and gets what he thinks is an open shot or will be an open shot because he got a pick from Ewing. And Hakeem Olajuwon's having to come over from basically the middle of the floor to try to block a shot. And, you know, this is a two-time reigning defensive player of the year in Hakeem who gets just enough of maybe a fingernail on Starks' shot to change the trajectory of it. Again, what Starks thought would be an open shot, and it wasn't. So the shot gets blocked as the clock expires. The Knicks lose by two when Starks had taken a three that would have won the game for them if it had gone down. And again, he'd made six shots in a row, so he had all the confidence in the world that the shot was going in. So he doesn't get it. And then what I think was kind of unbeknownst to everybody for the most part, and and I think the book sheds light on this, um, Starks essentially develops insomnia for the next three nights from Sunday night to Wednesday when they play the game seven. And they're playing in Houston. Both of those games were in Houston. This was at a time where the series setup was 2-3-2. So the Knicks had played all three of their home games already by this point. So they lose game six in Houston. Houston players get to sleep in their own beds for the next three nights. The Knicks are in a hotel to the point where they feel handcuffed. They can't even look at TV and watch TV and scramble through the TV channels to find something to watch because every channel essentially has something on about the Rockets still being alive in the series. So they're restless and they have nothing to really do um, other than prepare for practice. And Starks can't sleep. He's just staring at a ceiling all night. Um, so he's struggling with this in a way that he normally doesn't. He normally can just kind of go from one play to the next, one game to the next. 
he really struggles with this. They get to game seven, he hasn't slept. He is making horrible mistakes on defense, just inattentive on certain things. Um, his shooting is completely, completely off. He's like, you know, shots are banging off the backboard before they hit the rim, uh, just completely off by a number of feet with these shot he takes. So he starts the game one for 13, and it starts to raise the question of like, okay, we realize that Starks is the reason we're here because Ewing had been off. Starks had basically become the number one option. He had had three games in a row where he'd had double-digit fourth quarters to really keep them or win them the game. Uh, he'd shot 50% from games two to six and 45% from three over those games. Uh, was averaging 21 points and seven assists per game from games two to six. So, you know, they had relied on him heavily, but now it's at a point where he's one for 13 and everybody's wondering, are you going to pull him? You have to do something. You can't just let him keep shooting you out of the game because the Knicks are down by three, down by four, down by six at most. Um, it's a winnable game other than Starks just kind of shooting and having the worst game of his life, basically. Um, so the Rockets are among the people most concerned about whether uh, Riley is going to pull Starks out, in particular because Rolando Blackman is one of the possible people that he could bring off the bench to replace Starks with, and Rolando has killed the Rockets over time. He used to be a Maverick. He's the Mavericks' leading scorer of all time at that point in his career, he was a four-time All-Star. They had never had a real clear answer for how to guard him. Now, granted, this is an older Rolando Blackman, but he's certainly an option in the Rockets. Scott Brooks told me, he said, we were petrified that they were going to bring Rolando off the bench. We figured that was what would happen. Uh, Rolando's highest career scoring average against any team was against those Rockets. So that's the thought, and people are starting to wonder, is that an option that Riley's going to use? But the backstory, again, that people didn't know, and I think even until this book didn't know, is that Pat Riley had gotten in an argument with Rolando Blackman about two and a half weeks before that as the team closed out the series against the Pacers. The Knicks are in a great mood, and they are you know, all about to take part in their first NBA Finals. None of them have ever won one before, and I don't think any of them have been to an NBA Finals before this. Um, so Rolando ends up asking Pat Riley in front of the whole team, can we bring our wives to Houston for the Finals? And Pat says no, just a flat no. And then he, when he gets that answer and gets no explanation for it, he says, Pat, I'm not understanding here. You know, like, this is a team of really professional guys. This has been a really long season for us. It's been a really long postseason for us. Um, you know, they played two back-to-back seven-game series. And he was like, I don't understand. Like, our, our wives hold down our households for us. This is a huge crowning achievement for us. They want to celebrate this with us, too, and we want them to celebrate it with us. So, why are you saying no? Like, why can't they come with us? They're not going to be a distraction. And Pat says, no. And, and, you know, he was almost frustrated or was frustrated with the idea that Rolando would even question him about why um, a second time, certainly a second time. So at that point, uh, you know, Pat is angry that Rolando's questioned him in front of the team. Pat makes a call to the team president and basically says, after all this happens, I need you to back me up on this, that the wives shouldn't be able to come. It'll be a distraction. Um, because this is outside of what we do during the normal season. So that was that. Um, wives didn't come, but also Pat was frustrated with Rolando for having asked that question in front of the team and then having challenged him in front of the team a second time. And so you have Doc Rivers, you've got Derek Harper, you've got Charles Oakley, and you have Rolando himself that have all kind of wondered deep down whether that had something to do with why um, Rolando never got into the series or never got into that game in Game 7 despite the fact that he was a natural sort of guy that could have replaced Starks there. Um, so who knows? You know, I asked Pat a couple times. Um, 
I, I asked for him to speak to me for the book, and I also laid out that question specifically. He didn't take the bait on it, but he has written handwritten letters to Rolando over the years explaining um, essentially that he wishes that he'd made a different decision there and that Rolando should have gotten into the game. He's called it the biggest mistake he's ever made coaching, um, but Rolando has never written back to those letters <laughs> from Pat. Wow. And your book, I mean, we've only touched, you know, thank you so much, Chris, for coming on, but we've only touched part of it because then we have the whole Van Gundy years and the fact that how how Riley ended up leaving and the Don Nelson. So you cover the following, you know, those other years in the book. So it's a, I love your book. I love the stories. I love the anecdotes. I mean, that's what I think is so cool about the book. You bring up things that as much as this topic, I think people have covered, you bring up stories that no one's ever heard before. So I really appreciate you writing, uh, writing the book called Blood in the Garden, the flagrant history of the 90s New York Knicks. So thank you again for coming on Iron Sports and talking about the Knicks. No problem at all. Thank you so much, Ira, for having me.